Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 25th of June. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thanks for joining us. Emily, how was the return from Slovakia and how was Washington? Did it cope with your absence? It was tough, um, but D.C. made it through. It had all of this humidity to keep it company while I was gone. Uh, but no, I'm, I'm back. I'm down from the high of being in Central Eastern Europe, back to, back to the United States. How is Berlin? Your, your goulash high. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Berlin is good, is also hot and muggy. Um, I've now had my first vaccine dose, which I'm very excited about. Uh, so all, all good here. So with that, what's been a moment of the past week that you've been paying attention to? I mean, this is, this is not at all the biggest piece of news from the last week, but it was the one that will stick with me personally for a long time. So Russia this past week declared that Bard College, that's Bard in upstate New York, that Bard's program in St. Petersburg is undesirable, which effectively, I mean, which, which closes it down, right? First, this is a major shift in that while Russia has pushed out NGOs, uh, you know, has given, you know, some, some journalists and outlets a hard time, it has basically left universities alone. And so this signifies a shift there. For me personally, I would just note that this was the program through which I did study abroad a decade ago. It's sad, both in that you know, baby Russianists today won't won't have that experience, and it, it really is a wonderful program through which you you take classes with Russian students in Russian, and you you know stay with Russian host families, and you travel around Petersburg and, and Russia, and and so it's sad to me that that people coming up now won't won't get that chance. But the other thing that that is so heartbreaking to me is all of us on that program loved Russian, right? We were all there to learn to learn more about the language and the culture. And I was speaking to an academic friend of mine, you know, I'm a journalist, she's an academic, and we both agreed that we were probably more nuanced in our coverage or, or, or you know, research on, on Russia because of that experience. So it's sad to me for that reason too, right? That this channel of people to people contact and understanding and communication um, is being shut off. So that is what I will remember from the past week. And if I may say so, I think that nuanced approach to Russian-Western relations showed in your excellent New Statesman cover package last week on the cold web between Russia and the US and how the two remain entangled in a, a mixture of interdependence, tension, adversarial relations and competition. 
I'd strongly recommend listeners who haven't yet read that to do so because I think it puts that relationship in in, in a lot of very useful contexts and it's a really great great read. Well, спасибо, Jeremy. And what what uh, stood out to you from the past weeks? The past week in world affairs. I think a big moment was on Wednesday. Um, China's President Xi Jinping spoke with three Chinese astronauts who had recently arrived. They blasted off um, last Thursday, so eight days ago, as this podcast goes out, to the country's first independent, in fact, its first ever space station. Um, and he talked about the contribution they were making to China's role in humanity's history. It was a very, it was the grand narrative. And the fact of this space station, which China is gradually building and is a sort of semi-rival to the International Space Station, which is primarily, a, as, as you know, a US-Russia affair, you know, it's a symbol of China's rise. It's a symbol of China's ambitions. Um, and of course, this is all timed very closely to um, lead up to the 100th anniversary of the foundation of the Chinese Communist Party, which is being marked on the 1st of July um, with big events in Beijing and across China. And in fact, I've written about that anniversary, about the, the, the events that are being commemorated. I went back and read some of the histories of the foundation of the Chinese, Chinese Communist Party back in the it was a secretive gathering of 14 people in the top floor of a, a, a girls' school in the French concession in Shanghai. And and look at what we can tell about today's China by looking at those roots. And I talk about the role of the space station in the commemorations. So I just think it's a very interesting point in China's development and also in, as a study in China's self-image. So I think that was that was a significant moment. That was a significant moment. And it also brings us nicely to our interview this week. So Jeremy, why don't you go ahead and introduce our guest? Well, the 30th of June this year marks the first anniversary since the coming into force of the national security law, which was imposed um, by Beijing on Hong Kong and marked a, a major step forward in Beijing's control of the territory and a major step backwards for democracy and, and freedoms there. So we're very pleased to be joined to discuss the situation in Hong Kong, the relationship with China and what it means for the rest of the world by Louisa Lim, who is the author of The People's Republic of Amnesia on Memories of Tiananmen Square, uh, the co-host of The Little Red Podcast, and who teaches journalism at the University of Melbourne. And she's joining us from there. So Louisa, thank you very much for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. So first of all, a, a, an open-ended question. One year on, what has been the significance of the national security law? How has life in Hong Kong changed? So a year on, the um, impact of the national security law has been quite massive. And I think it's actually sort of accelerated over time. If you remember, sort of cast your mind back to a year ago, at the time when it was announced, the chief executive of Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, said it would only target a tiny minority of people, of lawbreakers. But in fact, its impact has been so wide that she herself has said that every government department, every individual has been affected by it. And of course, today, um, we, we're really seeing how it's being used to clamp down on dissent with the closure of Apple Daily newspaper today, which is a massive blow for freedom of expression and freedom of the press in Hong Kong. We, we definitely want to come on, on to that in, in, in a second. But briefly, how has it changed the relationship between Hong Kongers and the Chinese government? As far as you're aware, how, how present is China's control in political and legal affairs in Hong Kong, or even daily life, I'm not sure. Is that, is, that, is that palpable, do you know? In the first years after Hong Kong returned to Chinese rule in 1997, you know, the promise always was that Hong Kong people should run Hong Kong, and ch chief executives were put into place who were approved by Beijing 
you know, some of them were Hong Kongers and they were quite acceptable to Hong Kong. But we are seeing a sort of shifting of control there with the central liaison office, which is sort of the Chinese representative office in Hong Kong becoming more and more important. And then after the national security law passed, these sort of Orwellian sounding uh, national security offices opened up in Hong Kong. I think there are now two. The first one, they commissioned, took over a hotel in the dead of night. And, you know, it was just there. So uh, there has been a shift in power, but I think um, when it comes down to relationships, one of the biggest changes has been this this legal change. After the 1997 handover, Hong Kong was run according to the basic law, this mini constitution. And now what we see is national security legislation actually supersedes the basic law. So, So, you know, that's been a really, really big shift in sort of the legal framework that governs Hong Kong. And I think that is really quite a seismic change. So I I just want to return briefly to something you said at the very top, which was that when this was introduced, it was going to be, it was allegedly going to be very narrowly applied, but now we see it affecting, you know, everybody. One never wants to sort of say, ah, this is what they meant to do all along. But, you know, as far as you can tell, do you think that the the original intent of the law was indeed to have the seismic change and to impact everyone? Or was it meant to be narrowly applied and it's just gotten out of control? It's very interesting. The person who said that, Carrie Lam, the chief executive of Hong Kong, even she had not seen that law before it was enacted. I mean, it was enacted, imposed sight unseen on Hong Kong. Only one Hong Kong person, a man called Tam Yu Chung, who's part of the National People's Congress, one of their quite very senior delegates, who I think saw it, but she certainly had not seen it. And that the way that it was imposed on Hong Kong, uh, it was attached as an annex to the basic law. So it didn't have to go through any of the legal processes required by Hong Kong legislation. So it didn't have to be um, approved by Hong Kong legislators. It didn't go through any of those procedures. It was just kind of slapped on Hong Kong. Here it is, good to go. You know, July the 1st, it starts. Um, So it's perfectly possible that when she said that, she believed it. But it does say something about the the balance of power between uh, Beijing and Hong Kong, that that the woman who ended up overseeing the enactment of this legislation made these promises that then turned out one year later to be completely untrue. Right. And just for people who are, are, you know, less familiar with, with Hong Kong, can you briefly describe the relationship between Carrie Lam and Beijing. Well, it's a tricky thing to describe because, you know, according to the agreement set down, Hong Kong people are supposed to administer Hong Kong, except when it comes to sort of, you know, foreign relations and things like that. But in actual fact, the relationship is much more obscure when it comes to the balance of power. How much is what she herself decides, how much is dictated from her by Beijing through that central liaison office? You know, nobody knows the details. The workings of the Chinese Communist Party are often within a black box. And now that black box is kind of extending to cover Hong Kong as well. Well, one example of this, which you you already mentioned, is the closure of of Apple Daily. Could you describe 
what Apple Daily is and, and why this is such a significant change. So Apple Daily is a newspaper in Hong Kong, and it's one of the most popular newspapers in Hong Kong. It's a tabloid. It's quite brash. It's quite bold. They run a lot of sensational kind of racy stuff. But the other thing is, is it's unashamedly pro-democracy and it has always had this, you know, quite critical approach towards China. Uh, its owner is a man called Jimmy Lai Chi Ying, mm -hmm. who's a clothing tycoon who opened this, this newspaper 26 years ago. And um, it has played this sort of remarkably influential role in public life in Hong Kong, you know, when there were these big protest marches, Apple Daily actually prints, you know, placards for people to carry. It, it has front pages exhorting people to go out and march, this kind of thing. It's a very popular newspaper. So all the other newspapers have one by one sort of become co-opted. Uh, often Chinese businessmen or business conglomerates have, have bought up stakes so they control these Hong Kong newspapers and their editorial lines have become more and more pro-Beijing. So, you know, July the 1st last year, when the national security legislation was enacted, every other newspaper in Hong Kong had an advert placed by the Hong Kong government on their front pages, the same advert, um, you know, exhorting the, the national security law and saying why it was necessary. Apple Daily was the only one that didn't do that. It ran a news story talking about this law and actually calling it in its headline an evil law. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, it's it stood apart from the pack. It's been very influential. And it's always been suspected that this would be one of the targets of the national security law. And as I understand it, the aim was to shut down Apple Daily in time for the July the 1st commemorations, which are impo important naturally in Hong Kong, but also in Beijing as well this year with the anniversary of the Communist Party's foundation, right? I remember on June the 4th last year, we interviewed Jimmy Lai. And even at that time, we asked him, you know, what do you see as, as your future? And he said, it's, my, it's our responsibility just to keep on going. And we, I remember we asked, well, what happens if journalists and editors start being arrested? And he said, I am moving into a position of responsibility because I do not want them to take the blame. I want to take the responsibility and I will keep going because I feel it's the right thing to do. And he um, was arrested in February on national security charges. And at that time, Apple Daily was raided. And then he had a whole sort of welter of other public order offenses laid against him for illegal assembly, things like that. Um, but Apple Daily continued until... Six days ago, six days ago, it was raided again, and the funds for the parent company, Next Digital, were frozen, and the paper found it impossible to continue. Uh, at the same time, five editors and senior staff members at, at Apple Daily were arrested, and then the lead opinion writer was also arrested, and police said that they had... Uh, have been arrested on suspicion of colluding with foreign nations because of articles calling for sanctions on China and Hong Kong. But it was very unclear what the articles were, whether they were op-eds, whether they were news stories. None of that has yet emerged. But the paper decided that it couldn't survive. So uh, the final version, the final edition was printed last night. 
they printed a million copies. And Hong Kongers flocked to the headquarters of Apple Daily to, 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 it, to wish it farewell. There were these tremendously long lines, hundreds and hundreds of people waiting at newsstands. You know, people got up at midnight to, to wait for their last commemorative copy. And, you know, in a city of seven and a half million people, they printed a million copies of the newspaper and they were sold out. As an expert on journalism, Louisa, do you think there was anything that could have been done to prevent the Apple Daily story from ending this way? It, it would not have been in the character of either Apple Daily or Jimmy Lai to back down to take a different editorial route. So I think, you know, as long as they continued to report in the way that they were, you know, I think everybody could see that end coming. And, you know, all, all the journalists that I know that, that worked there, you know, everyone suspected that it would happen. I think what was shocking was just the speed at which it unfolded, you know, six days to shut a listed company and a listed company that was remarkably popular that, that's, that's quite something. And, you know, if you think about not just what that says about freedoms, but also what it says to other listed companies in Hong Kong about the power of the state, you know, you can see that, that, that this is sending quite a message. There are some who are critical of Jimmy Lai who say, well, the problem is that he and Apple Daily are, are right wing right? Or, oh, they're populist. I mean, to my mind, it's sort of like, that's not that's not relevant, right? We're talking about press freedom. But I wanted to give you a, a chance to opine on that. There are many things that one might not agree with, with the way that Apple Daily, you know, even journalistic decisions that they have made. But to see a journalistic organization closed down like this, on national security grounds for articles published is something that's very shocking for Hong Kongers and, and it's very chilling. The, the the criticisms of Jimmy Lai and Apple Daily um, from parts of the left, I think, from what I've understood, um, remind me almost a bit of some of the um, sort of whataboutery that surrounds, we've actually talked about this on the podcast before, um, Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition. Right, and 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 I imagine you were also thinking Roman Protasevich, the the Belarusian opposition um, uh, activist and campaigner who was taken off a plane, forced to land in Minsk about a month or so ago, and it just feels again like the wrong metric by which to judge this. You know, from what I've seen, the Apple Daily were doing fantastic stuff, but even if you didn't like their journalism, it, it comes back again and again to these points of principle that are under attack in Hong Kong, just as they are in parts of Eastern Europe and elsewhere in the world. So just to move it forward quickly before we go on to our You Ask Us question, where do things go from here, do you think, Louisa? Because, you know, as, as mentioned, July the 1st is an important day in Hong Kong. It's the anniversary of Hong Kong's handover. Traditionally, it's been a day of, 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 of protest for democracy uh, in the territory. And, and in mainland China as well, it's going to be a big day because, as I said, this is going to be the commemoration of the 100th anniversary of the CCP's foundation. What do we expect from July the 1st? And also, what do we expect from the rest of the year? We've got elections coming up in December. Where do things go from here in Hong Kong? July the 1st will be interesting to watch. Normally, it's the date when there's a, a huge protest march because it's the anniversary of Hong Kong's 1997 return to Chinese sovereignty. And of course, in 2019, July the 1st was the day that people broke into the legislature 
So it's always a big day in the Hong Kong protest calendar. This year, that protest has not been allowed. And in fact, the organization that was behind all those massive protests, the CHRF, the Civil Human Rights Front, looks like it's being forced to disband. So it will be interesting to see what happens, whether there is some form of of protest or civil disobedience or defiance that, that happens on that day. I would say the the impact of the national security legislation has been much, much larger than just the closure of Apple Daily. We're seeing the electoral system has been completely revamped. So election candidates have to be vetted by police on national security grounds. That makes it almost impossible for pro-democracy politicians to even get through sort of the, the first past the first post. But that probably doesn't make any difference anyway, because uh, 47 of them were arrested on national security grounds for holding primary polls. Um, so, you know, basically an election, a generation of politicians has been criminalized. But and we're also seeing these sort of massive changes in other spheres as well. You know, academia, for example, and education uh, textbooks are being rewritten with a national security focus. So, for example, history is all about territorial integrity and it's being rewritten all the way back to the Qin Dynasty in 221 BC to sort of make the point that Hong Kong has always been part of China from time immemorial. But, you know, not just history books, chemistry books and geography books are also being rewritten. I think that we now need to look at what other spheres are likely to be affected by the national security legislation. Um, The pro-China press in Hong Kong has been taking aim at the Bar Association. So the legal system may be next. Churches who have traditionally played a large part in Hong Kong civil society have come under some criticism because the churches played quite a role during the protests, sheltering protesters. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, the national security legislation is, you know, it's being applied in more and more sectors. The rest of the year looks like more of the same, possibly even accelerating in pace. I think, you know, the lack of any kind of uh, major reaction from the international community really emboldens Beijing just just to keep going. Just briefly, do you think it's too soon to say that one country, two systems is over? I think one country, two systems has effectively been over for a while. I mean, I I think what we have seen in the last year is a very dramatic shrinkage of the freedoms that that did exist. I would say in many ways, Hong Kong is now a harder place to operate than the mainland, you know, particularly as a journalist, because the red lines are just so unclear. The risks are so unquantifiable. You know, if you're in China, you know, people have a pretty good idea of what's allowed and what isn't. But in Hong Kong, not at all. So I think that uncertainty really breeds an atmosphere of fear. And, you know, for certain people, you know, certain politicians and, you know, very prominent figures, it's it's a really worrying time. I can I can understand that as a journalist. I mean, yeah, to to know which what constraints one has to operate within is one thing, but to be in in some sort of awkward grey zone um, must be very difficult indeed. Where you're constantly working out how how far do I push this boundary? How how far can I go? Yeah, nothing but solidarity with uh, with 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 um, fellow journalists in Hong Kong, those who are still there and haven't gone to. Taiwan or the UK or wherever. And I mean, even worse than that, the 
sometimes the legislation is being applied retroactively. So what we saw with Apple Daily is when they closed, they removed their entire archive from the internet. That's 26 years of journalism that's vanished forever. In fact, I heard including articles that had nothing to do with the protest movement. So articles on kind of science or um, history or cultural events. I mean, it, it's it, anything that had a hint of approval for the protest movement was stripped out, yeah. right? It's their entire archive, every article they've ever written. Oh, literally everything. Goodness. Literally everything. So one Hong Kong friend said to me today, it's like they've torn out our collective memory. Um, you know, she said the, the, these are the articles that we used to share every, you know, every weekend having yum cha with our families and they're all gone. And it's literally, I mean, it's a, it's a quarter century of, of history, right? That there's, there's no longer, there was a record of it and now there isn't. That's right. So overnight, you know, people were desperately trying to save these articles elsewhere. And they have also been doing the same for the government broadcaster RTHK, which has also been purging its archive. But that kind of idea of disappearing history, um, a history that, you know, we've lived through that is suddenly no longer there is completely chilling. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just two dollars a week in America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, with that, we come to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. So our question this week, and it's related, um, it's from an anonymous listener who basically wanted to know, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, these plans that Western leaders say they have to work together to counter China and stand up for democracy. Um, what does that mean for Hong Kong? 
Well, I mean, I think it really depends what is the flesh on these plans, exactly what a Western country is going to, going to do. I think so far it seems there's been some hand-wringing, but not a lot of action, actually. There were sanctions against some Hong Kong officials. And interestingly, after the sanctions were announced, at one point, Carrie Lam, the chief executive, talked about how she was no longer able to have a bank account because of the sanctions against her. So that was actually a really kind of interesting window into the impact that sanctions were having on everyday life. After that, you know, short of handwringing, we haven't seen any much of a concerted effort uh, and much coordination on Hong Kong. I don't know whether that will change. I think for many Western governments, the question is, what can they actually do to impact the situation in Hong Kong? Yes. And, and I think at this point, one of the problems is that the damage has already been done. You know, uh, more than 100 people have been charged with national security charges. You know, politi- a generation of politicians is is in jail. Textbooks are being rewritten. Apple Daily has shut down. It, it's really hard to see any way in which any of that can be reversed. So it, it's very hard to know what, what can be done. Well, that brings us to our next section in which we look ahead to the world in the next seven days. Louisa, as our guest, what will you be looking out for in global affairs or indeed in Hong Kong affairs? I mean, I'll be watching what happens on that July the 1st anniversary. I'll be watching to see if there's any movement on the streets, any protest actions, any arrests, and to see what kind of statements are being made, even to watch what the government itself is doing. I remember two years ago, their ceremony to mark their handover had to be carried out inside the legislative complex, sort of pretty much under guard, like like under siege, because there were so many protests outside. So it'll be interesting to see the way in which those ceremonies um, are carried out this year. And what about you, Emily? So as listeners to this podcast may or may not know, um, Hungary recently passed legislation that, among other things, basically renders it illegal to have any content in schools that references LGBTQI plus people. Now, this is absurd as there are students who are gay and lesbians and transgender and banning mention of them does not change that fact. The EU has replied by saying, you know, Ursula von der Leyen called it shameful. This may violate EU treaties. Hungary is doing its normal. This is, you know, an attack on our sovereignty. Um, So I will be continuing to follow the fallout of that. And what about you, Jeremy? I'll be watching the tensions between Sudan and Ethiopia about the large dam on the River Nile that Ethiopia has built. The country is going ahead with the second filling of the dam this summer. And Sudan, which obviously is downstream from the dam, which affects Sudan and Egypt, wants the UN Security Council to rule on it. And it's it's a it's a growing cause of tensions in that part of Africa. And also, I think, a sign of the, 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 the coming conflict over water that are going to become more and more important in international affairs. With that, all that remains is to say thank you so much to our guest, Louisa Lim, today. Louisa, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Louisa has written a piece for us or is writing a piece for us um, on the anniversary that we've been discussing, and that will appear in the New Statesman next week. So stay tuned for that. And if you have enjoyed this episode of the New Statesman Worldview, 
please tell your friends, cousins, acquaintances, strangers about it. Like, subscribe, leave a little review. And as a final reminder, you can subscribe to the free newsletter component of the World Review Experience at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. Our producer has been Chris Stone. Thank you for listening and until next week. 